Romans chapter 5, this morning we're going we're gonna to finish part 2 of a lesson I started called What We Have in Christ. And uh, our, my goal a couple of weeks ago was to get through verse 11. We made it to verse 5 and had to stop. That's not uncommon around here. Uh, you know, most of the time in life, uh, the way we prefaced this message two weeks ago was many times in life we look at the things that we don't have instead of the things that we do have. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we're trying to teach our girls, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad, I got two little girls. Every night when we pray with our, our kids, uh, one of the things that we do is we ask them, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for today? What, what can you thank God for today? Uh, what, did you, what, what did God do today? Or, or just what are you thankful that God's blessed our, our home with or our family with? And we actually pray and thank God for our home and we thank God for our cars and we thank God for our food and our clothing, and, and we just thank, we thank God for what we have instead of being focused on what we don't have in life because God is sufficient, and, and He's blessed us with, with all the things that we need. And, uh, and, and so Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, really unpack for us truly what the believer has in Jesus Christ. It is one of the richest portions of Scripture. As I've studied this, maybe not for you, but for me, man, God has just reminded me and enlightened me and and helped me to refocus on what I have in Christ through Him. And, and it is abundantly rich, the, the, the richness that we have through Christ. And so uh, I want to read verses 1 to 5. I'll give you a review real quick. If you weren't here two weeks ago, we'll launch right into verse 6 in just a second. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want you to pay attention to the phrase, we have in this passage because God's just telling us what we have. <laughs> he wants you to remind you, Christian, what you have in Christ. Number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that means that without Christ, we did not have peace with God. As a matter of fact, we were, with, we were his enemies. Uh, we were in our sin and we were against him and he was against us. But now, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God and since we have peace with God, now we can experience the peace of God, Philippians chapter 4, which passes all understanding. The Christian life ought to be a life of peace. Even, even in the midst of tribulation and trouble and suffering and, and difficulties, and listen, we all experience that, right? I mean, listen, anybody had a rough week last week? If you did not have a rough one last one, you will have a rough one maybe in the next week or two. You're just going to experience difficulty as a child of God in this world. But you can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you have peace with God, it unlocks the peace of God. That no matter what happens, man, it, he gives you a peace that passes all understanding. And he keeps your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful for that. Christian, that's available to you through Jesus Christ. Number two, verse two says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, so he also says that we have access to the grace of God, and, and we have access to that grace by faith. So positionally, we know that we stand in the grace of God. Uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We, we know that passage. We know that at, at the moment of salvation, we stand positionally in Christ, and we've received his grace. But listen, we need God's grace every single day, not just the day we got saved. We need it that day and every day since then. And maybe you don't, but I do. 
Grace is God's unmerited favor. And, and, and the way that we have access to his grace, it's just by faith. It's the same way you got saved. You just believe God's word. You believe the gospel. You believe what God says in his word about your life, your circumstances. And when you just trust God's word, his grace is accessible. And if you don't have faith, it's not. (laughs) And God wants us all to live by faith because we have access to the grace of God today. And I need it today. So I need to trust God's word today. Number three is this, we have hope worth rejoicing over because the end of verse two says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And so we now can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope in the Bible is not baseless hope. In other words, a Christian doesn't have to, boy, I sure hope this works out. I sure hope this thing happens. Hope in the Bible is assurance of what God has said is going to happen. And many times that word hope is connected with his second coming. It is the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. That is what we are looking for. And that's why we can rejoice. That's why we can rejoice. And so With that being said, we got you up to speed now. Pick it up in verse 6, and and this is our text today. Verse 6 says this, For when we were yet, yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son Jesus, or excuse me, by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And again, this, this passage just un unlocks for us more understanding about what we have in Christ. Man, two weeks ago and today, or to encourage and equip us as saints of God to walk in confidence of what we have because of Jesus. So let's pray together. We'll hit the text and we'll be done. Father, we love you. Thank you again for the morning and thank you for uh, just what you've already done uh, in our heart and life. God, thank you again for Ms. Sherry being here today. God, thank you for Cody rejoicing in his, in his spiritual birthday today. I just, man, I'm so excited uh, of what you've already done. Uh, the time of worship and praise, the missionary update of, of a college student getting saved. Uh, Father, you've already done more than um, what we deserve. And uh, I pray you just take the next few minutes, God. Take your word. God, reveal it to us in such a way through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would understand who you are and what you've done in our life and what we have in Christ. Help us to walk in the confidence of these truths, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pick it back up in verse 6, and, and let's get going here. Verse 6 says this, When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. And, and so we are recipients, the, the, the fourth point of study, the fourth point picking up from two weeks ago, is this, we are recipients of God's love toward us because Christ died for the ungodly. And listen, he gives us an illustration Scarcely for a righteous man one will die. 
Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. And, and I want to illustrate it like this this morning. You know, we, we, we appreciate people in our military, for instance, that are willing to lay down their life for their country. Sometimes they lay down their life for the soldier next to them in battle. It's, this is something that, that, that really, as a, as a country, we, we place high value on. Here's someone willing to lay down their life for uh, the greater good, for the, for the cause of the country. Uh, people that protect, uh, like our president, you know, Ronald Reagan, I think, is a great example. You know, many years ago, the assassination attempt and the Secret Service agent that stepped in front of the bullet literally to save his life uh, and take a bullet. And, and, and so, you know, we, we think about that. We think of first responders, uh, the fireman that goes into the burning building, willing to sacrifice his life for someone he doesn't even know to pull them out and hopefully save their life. And, and, and we think about maybe a husband uh, that's willing to sacrifice his life in a, in a dangerous situation for the sake of his wife or for the sake of his children. And, and we would say, man, yeah, you know, the words of Jesus are true. John 15 and verse 13 Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And there are things in our culture that can reflect that truth. But I want to tell you something. It doesn't say that Christ died for his friends. The Bible says that Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. Because verse 8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us. Well, the us in verse 8 is the sinners of verse 8, because he says he commendeth his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, not his friends, we were yet sinners, and yet Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. And I, and I want to just remind you gently this morning, church, that Christ died for sinners, and he died for the ungodly, and that is the first place that you have to get in order to be saved. That's the first place you got to get in your heart and your mind that Christ died for the ungodly. You say, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Are you? <laughs> How good are you? Are you so good that Christ didn't have to die for you? You know, we talk about evangelism and sharing the gospel with people uh, all the time. We, we want to make sure that we don't water down the gospel. That The truth is Christ died for our sins. He died because we are sinners. He died because we are ungodly. Many times we, we use the methodology, uh, we even talked about it in Sunday school, going back to the Ten Commandments and asking people, are you a good person? Well, how good are you? Here's another way we could ask that question. Hey, let me ask you a question. Are you ungodly? Because Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the sinner. And I don't know about you, man, but listen, that's the first place in my mind where I had to get to understand truly what Christ had done for me and how much he loved the world was, was to realize I am a sinner, I am ungodly and against God, I have broken his law and his commandment, and because of that, I am unholy and ungodly, and I, I need a savior. I need a savior. I mean, we were the enemies of God. You say, Jay, I don't like that. I'm a pretty good person. Listen, I don't really care what you like. The Bible says... According to the authority of, of God's word, we are the enemies and ungodly in our heart and mind and nature, and God commendeth his love, despite all those things, toward us. The first place you have to get is the place where you understand, I'm a guilt, guilty, ungodly, horrible, wretched sinner, and I need to be saved from my sin. You say, that, that's judgmental. No, that's Bible. 
because Christ died for the ungodly. Don't deflect, don't deflect from your own need of a Savior and, and, and understand that Christ, when he died for us, it was a commendation of God's love toward us in our ungodly, sinful state. You see, Christ died for us. He didn't die for the righteous because only he is righteous. He didn't die for the good because only he is good. And he didn't die for the godly because only he is God. We are sinners. We were the enemies of God. We are ungodly in our human sinful nature. And Christ died yet for us. Well, that puts a spin on the gospel that many of us don't realize or appreciate or understand what it took for God to really love us. Uh, I think Walt mentioned it in Sunday school. You know, sometimes people look at Christians and they say, well, you Christians, man, you just think you're better than everybody else. No, actually, the truth is I think I'm worse than everybody else. I am so bad. I realize I'm ungodly. I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that without Christ, there is no hope in my life. I'm not better than anybody. As a matter of fact, I'm worse than all of you. As Paul said, I am chief among sinners. And I need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Boy, it's amazing how we miss what really Christ did for us and the extent of God's love toward us. It says in verse 8, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, not even worth saving, Christ died for us. God treated his own enemies better than we would treat our friends. Does that make sense? I mean, I mean, listen, we, we, we would treat our f- friends pretty good. We, we probably wouldn't even die for our friends. Maybe we'd die for our wife and certainly for our children. But listen, God treated his enemies better than we would ever treat a friend because he was willing to lay down his life for us. And so, and so we need to be reminded this morning, we, if you're born again, if you've, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're on the receiving end of God's love in spite of your God ungodliness, in spite of your sin, in spite of your unrighteousness. And he commendeth his love toward us through Jesus Christ, and he has saved us from our sin. And all those things now, when, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin and our ungodliness. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ on our heart and life. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful how, how he views us now, not as enemies, but as family, as, as, as beloved, you know, we're studying First John on Wednesday night. God says that we are his beloved. And man, that's a powerful term of endearment. We are recipients of God love, God's love, point number four. Pick it up, verse nine. So the Bible goes on and says, much more than. And listen, could it get any better? Honestly, I mean, we've already covered four things that we don't deserve, that we don't, we don't certainly earn And yet God gives us, we have in Christ all of these things. And then verse 9 says, much more then, but wait, there's more. (laughs) Much more than being now justified by his blood. Job 25 and verse 4 says this, how can a man be justified with God? How can he be clean that is born of a woman? And that word justified literally means just as if we have never sinned. That word justified or justification, that's the working definition of that word. How can a man be just as if he had never sinned before God? How can he be clean that's born of a woman before God? Well, listen, our culture teaches different things on that. Some would teach, well, if we just work hard enough, we can be justified in God's eyes. If we do enough good works. 
Some would say, well, if we get baptized, that's what washes away our uncleanness. Well, if I join a church, that will somehow make me just in God's eyes. It will make me clean. It'll make me religious. And listen, without the blood of Christ, there is no justification. There is no justification without the blood of Christ. As a matter of fact, the verse tells us that we are justified by his blood. And and, and you need to understand the connection, church, between the blood of Jesus Christ and justification. Because only through the blood of Christ can we be justified, just as if we'd never sinned. You know, one of the, one of the interesting things in, in modern versions of the Bible, not to get on that topic, that's for another conversation, but it is very interesting that modern versions of the Bible, one of the things that gets attacked and removed in modern versions of the Bible is the blood of Jesus Christ. If that is the very thing in which we have justification, well, the devil doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to know what you have in Christ. You say, Jay, is every, every version of the Bible... Listen, no, I'm not, don't put words into my mouth. I am telling you that there is a spiritual enemy that does not want you to know what you have in Christ. And if he can change the words and remove the words and remove the meaning and change the meaning, well, listen, all of a sudden, you don't understand the doctrine of justification. Let me give you a couple of examples. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 says this, "...in whom we have redemption..." Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And don't take the time now. And listen, if you walked in with a different version of the Bible, no one is attacking you. You bring whatever version of the Bible you want to this church. And you read it and you study it and you live according to it, please. But I am going to tell you, man, it is interesting that one of the key doctrines that gets attacked in some versions and some translations is this doctrine the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is that important? It's eternally important. (laughs) Because without the blood of Christ, we can't be justified. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption, how? Through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the Bible says, Paul is speaking to the elders at, at, at Ephesus, and he says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. And he's talking to these, these spiritual leaders. And he says, listen, you need to feed the church of God, which he, God, hath purchased. How did he purchase the church? He purchased it with his own blood. Jesus Christ is God. He bled, and he purchased his church with that blood. We sing the song, What Can Wash Away My Sin? And the answer is, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Listen, no other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, crossless Christianity and bloodless Christianity is not true Christianity. We have to understand the power of the blood of Christ. And listen, we have been justified. We have been made just as if we never sinned. And and we were made that way because of the blood of Jesus. And the Bible says that we are, verse 9 says, now justified. Now. We are now justified. That means that you can walk in the power of Christ's victory and Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And through Christ's shed blood, you can walk in the power of his victory now, today. 
You see, the power of, of his justification and the power of his blood didn't end when you prayed to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. That power, that justification, that, the, the power of his victory, well, listen, it's just as powerful today as it was then. And hopefully even more so because you understand it more. You understand what God's word teaches about it. And so listen, you know, we have now been justified through his blood. And I'm thankful for that. Let's never, let's never get over the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're preaching the gospel, make sure you land on the blood. Land on the blood. Invite people to church, that's fantastic. Do that. Sharing people about Jesus, that, that, do it. But man, end at the blood. Because that's what washes away sin. Number six is this. This is a powerful promise. Verse 9 says this. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And, and I just want to just write at the end of verse 9, it says there, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And so the sixth point for study is this. We are saved from God's wrath, his wrath to come. And listen, that is something that we have as a child of God that ought to give you confidence and assurance. It should give you peace and understanding. God is showing us that if he did all of this while we were his enemies, how much more will he do for us as his children? I mean, listen, he died for us when we were his enemies. And now we're born again, and how much more does God do for us? I mean, that same phrase in verse 10 shows up again. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I don't know, man, if we really understand what we have in Christ. Now listen, God does have wrath, and it will be exercised. God's wrath is reserved for those that refuse the gospel and reject the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6 says this, let no man deceive you with vain words for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. God does have a wrath. You say God is love. He is love. He's also holy and he's righteous and, and he can't allow for sin to continue and there will be a judgment as a matter of fact, His holiness demands that. Because He loves, well, there's also things that He has to hate. It's, I, mean, I mean, He has to. Because He loves you, He hates sin, and He hates the sinner. And, and listen, God, God made provision for the sinner, and, and God's wrath one day is going to be revealed and executed in judgment. But, but you need to understand, Christian, that you have been saved from wrath through Him. Because you were an enemy, but you're not any longer. You're not any longer. You've been reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so let me just give you some teaching on this. Number one, part of God's wrath is hell. I want you to understand that. Part of God's wrath is hell. In Matthew chapter 3, in verses 7 through 11, the Bible says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of, of the nation of Israel, come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers. Boy, how'd you, have, how'd you like to have that guy welcoming you to church? <laughs> He's the greeter on Sunday morning. Welcome to church, you generation of vipers. We have a special seat reserved for you on the front row. Okay, man. <laughs> Look what he says. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Let me just say something in the context. You know who would have been being baptized in that context? Those Pharisees and Sadducees. Because if they would have been baptized, that means they would have responded to John the Baptist's message, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Right? That, that baptism was for the nation of Israel. It was, it was a, a demonstration of their reception and repentance toward John's message. So he looks at these guys and he says, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath to come. Verse 8, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say to you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham, And now the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the... And remember, the context is the wrath of God. And he says, man, listen, there's going to be some trees that get cut down and they're going to get cast into the fire. And then he says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear... He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with, and with fire. Again, the context of this passage is the soon coming wrath of God and, and trees being cut down and cast into the fire. And oh, by the way, verse 11 gives you three baptisms. John's baptism, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and the baptism of fire. And the context defines for you The baptism of fire is not something that you want or pray for or anticipate. It's God's judgment. It is God's judgment. Verse 12, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So so again, not, not being disrespectful to our charismatic friends, but the baptism, I'm serious. I mean, I mean, I'm serious, man. The baptism of fire is not a baptism of tongues or baptism of miracles. The context very clearly defines it as a baptism of judgment. Uh, it, it's very clear. And so part of God's wrath is going to be this judgment that's played out in hell fire. But then secondly, part of God's wrath will be played out at his second coming. The second coming. Of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 says this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. To come. Now listen, there are people that have rejected the gospel, and, and listen, friend, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior today, you need to understand that today is the day of salvation. You don't need, you don't need to wait another day to reconcile your issue and your sin and your standing before a holy God. Today is the day you need to get saved. And you can do that. You can receive what Jesus Christ has done. There are people in hell today that have already experienced the beginning of God's wrath because they are burning in hell right now in an unquenchable fire and flame, begging just like the rich man did in Luke 16, give me one more chance. Give me, give me a, a drop of water on my tongue. Somehow, some way, please go tell everybody I know in my family not to come to this place. You see, I think the prayer life in hell is probably greater than most Baptist churches. Hello? I think the prayer life in hell is greater than most Baptist churches. And by the way, those prayers aren't going to get answered. 
They are on the receiving end of God's wrath. But that's not all because God says that he's going to come. And at his second coming, Revelation chapter 6 defines part of that as the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16. And in verse 17, it says, The great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? In Revelation 6, the context of that is the seven seals of the tribulation leading right up until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So at his coming, more of his wrath will be revealed, and ultimately his wrath will conclude at the great white throne judgment. Revelation 11, Revelation 21, where all the unsaved will stand and give an account. All the unsaved, all the lost will stand. Every, every man, every, everybody in hell will stand. Everyone that's ever lived and died and rejected the gospel will stand. Verse 18 says, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. And if you compare that to Revelation chapter 20, we understand that the great white throne judgment ends in God's wrath exercising complete justice, and those that have rejected him get cast into the lake of fire. You say, man, that's, that's pretty sobering. It is sobering. That's why you need to know if you're in Christ, you've been saved from that. You've been saved from that. You've been saved from the wrath to come. And I'm sure if we all sat down, we would have different thoughts on the tribulation and you know, all these different things. And, and we have to let the Bible be the authority on these issues And there's no wrath for you as a child of God because his judgment of your sin has been paid for in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, the wrath of God that literally was intended toward you has now been absolved. You've been reconciled, which leads to the last point, and we're done. Verse 11 says this, And not only so... But we also, I mean, it's just kind of like this passage never ends. I mean, it's like Christmas Day when the presents just keep coming. Have you ever had a Christmas like that where it's like, oh man, you open the present and then, oh man. And it's just like you're an hour into it and there's still presents coming. And it's just like, this is the greatest experience ever. Listen, this passage, this passage is just like that for the believer because much more, oh, not only so, here's more. There's yet more to come. Here it is, verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And by the way, in your Bible, that word atonement, that's the only mention of the word atonement in the New Testament. In the New Testament, It is not prefaced with the word limited. I just want to throw that out there. An atonement is something that's been paid to bring two disputing parties together. You could also break that word down at one minute. If you, if you could just break it down in the English, at one minute. We are at one because there has been something that brought two disputing parties together. Now listen, in the Old Testament, you, you know this, the atonement, which by the way, that word in the Old Testament shows up many, many times, the atonement was something that was given to reconcile man to God temporarily to bring those two parties together. Think back to the Old Testament sacrifices. 
Many times when you study this word in the Old Testament, it's found in the book of certainly Exodus, uh, Leviticus. It deals with the offerings. Those offerings were given by the person. They were given to make atonement to to temporarily reconcile them and, and their relationship with God. And if you've read the book of Hebrews or if you've read the Old Testament, you realize that they had to do that over and over and over and over and over again. How often they had to do it? Well, they had to do it every year. And then if, if they sinned in between there, then they had to bring that offering. You know, I mean, listen, they had to do the offering and there was atonement money and there was all these different things. Hebrews tells us in, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, that all of those things were a shadow of something that was going to be better, that was coming. All those things were a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. In other words, all of those sacrifices, they just pointed ultimately to Jesus Christ. They were just a shadow. They were just an image. As a matter of fact, the verse says, the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. Well, how many people were saved by the blood of goats in the Old Testament? Well, well they weren't perfect. You know, and that's a whole other conversation. Verse 2 says, For then would they have not ceased to be offered? I mean, if, if, if bringing this atonement offering would have just settled the issue and reconciled them to God, why do they have to keep doing that? Because that the worshipers once purged should have no conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So I just want to make the point. In the Old Testament, a man would bring an offering to make atonement. It was required. What if he didn't do that? Well, that's, that's the conversation. That's the conversation. What if he didn't do that? Well, he didn't have the atonement. But I want to tell you something. It shifts gears in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, you're not required to bring anything to reconcile your relationship with God. As a matter of fact, anything that you would bring would not be sufficient. It wouldn't be sufficient. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, go back to verse 11. In the New Testament, atonement is not something that you bring and give. Atonement is something that you receive. And you receive it because somebody else gave it. And the somebody else is the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave his blood. He shed his blood for us. He is able to reconcile us to God Now we have received the atonement, the reconciliation. We're not bringing something to make atonement for our sin. We're receiving the atonement for our sins because of what's already been given through Christ. Does that that help you a little bit? And so listen, man, God reconciles us to him through the blood of Christ. We have now... We have the atonement. Look at Colossians 1 real quick and we're we're done. Verses 21 to 22. Look at Colossians 1 verse 21. It says, and you, this is just to remind us who we were without Christ. You that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind 
by wicked works. I'm a pretty good guy. Well, <laughs> in your own mind, maybe. You may be a legend in your own mind. <laughs> but if you, would, if you would compare yourself, right, a legend in your own mind. <laughs> Man, I'm the greatest guy I've ever met, you know. Well, okay, it's going to be hard for you to get saved until you realize it's your sin that put Jesus on the cross, just like it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. Man, we were aliens and enemies to God. We, we had wicked works that showed it. Well, I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, well, I mean, how many lies have you told? One? That's enough. <laughs> how many times have you lusted in your heart? Once? That's enough. You're guilty. James says you break one law of God's law, you're guilty of all of it. And isn't that a thing really to drive us to humility, to make us understand we need Christ? I want you to know this morning, my, 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 my goal is not to, man, make any of us feel bad. It's to encourage us of what we've been saved from. It's to make us realize that, that, that in our sin, man, we really were aliens against God. We were enemies in God. Our wicked works proved it. Yet now, now, hath he reconciled, listen, in the body of his flesh through death to present you and I, look at these words, holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. Uh, that ought to give you some confidence, not in you, Christian, but it ought to give you some confidence in God the Father, and it ought to give you some confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has actually done for you. He's made the atonement. He's reconciled the two warring parties. And now when God sees you, He sees you as holy, not because you're holy, but because Jesus is holy. He sees you as unblameable, not because you're unblameable, because he is. And he sees you unreprovable in his sight. And those seven things, man, I really want to encourage you. Listen, those things are the things that you have in Christ. We have peace with God. If you're saved, you have peace with God. Now, well, if you're here today and you don't have peace with God, don't leave this place till you, till you settle that issue. You can receive Christ today. And listen, we have access to the grace of God. That wasn't just something that happened 39 years ago. That's something that happens every single day. And we access that grace by faith, and faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If we'll just trust God's Word and believe it, well, God's grace is available to us every day. We have hope worth rejoicing over because the Lord's coming back. And I'm excited about that. Hope He comes before we get done with this sermon. <clears throat> Some of you are like, I don't know about that. It'll be worth it. Trust me. It'll be worth it. We're justified by his blood. And by the way, we're justified now. We're saved from the wrath to come. We've now received the atonement. God's good. Amen. God's good. We need to walk, Christians. We need, we need to be encouraged with these things and realize in the course of life, it's going to be real easy to look at what we don't have. <laughs> well, I wish I had fill in the blank, whatever it is we wish we had, let's remember what we do have. And man, when we realize what we do have, we realize we are rich in Christ. We are so rich in Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we love you. Thank you for the morning. Uh, God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for...